Welcome to This Is Not A Circular, a podcast for Trade Gallery. All podcasts can be found at tradegallery.org. Today's podcast will be with artist Ellie Harrison, who is based in Glasgow and currently doing her MFA there. She is also artist in residence at Plymouth College of Art. Hello listeners. Hello listeners. This, this is, is not my choice of music. Ellie chose this cafe especially for music. <laughs> We're in a random cafe in Islington. Nothing to do with it. So, uh, being on a being within an institution, looking at your work, is that is that a good place for you to make work? Because a lot. I think a lot of your work is very much about structure, it's about data, it's about um, being within a particular time frame and that seems very, um, it seems in a way what, like what you do within a MA or That it MFA lends itself to an institution. Mm. It does really, um, but I, I've taken it on board, I've taken it on board myself to have a very, have a very structured week while I'm on the course so the course kind of provides that extra structure but I am very disciplined or I'm trying to be very disciplined about the work that I do and the amount of time that I spend in the studio and I do lots of extracurricular activities which will feed into the process like I do a lot of swimming I swim well I try to swim four times a week but it doesn't always work out like that and that's at the university so I'm also trying to reap the benefits of being within an institution and I go to all of these extracurricular lectures in the philosophy department at Glasgow University as well so I have a I have an action planner which I do actually have on me but I have a very sort of structured routine but having said that at the very beginning I mean one of the reasons why I am went to do in the MFA was to try to distance my work or the work that was making from my life to try to build sort of a bit of a gap between the two things so that they weren't so interconnected and I attempted to do that for about a week or so but then I realised that the way my brain works like it's almost as though everything that I'm doing is part of this bigger project anyway but I have, I have started to spew out artworks out of that process that are kind of spewed out and they sort of sit slightly separately from all the goings on so how how is that different from how is that different from when you were when you were in uh, Nottingham, you were doing a lot of swimming there, and oh, yes. probably went to a lot of lectures <laughs> there as well. But it's a good question. Um, you probably also had quite a lot of structure to your life. I did a lot of structure. The work that I'm making is totally different. That's the main difference, and but you have a reason to make work as well, like being within a, a, an institution provides these sort of um, 
assessment points, if you like, where you have to have produced something before. So it's like you might have an idea, and I may have had an idea, but the thing that I started working on when I first got on the course, I actually thought of in March, but never got round to doing it because I didn't have any reason to do it. So when I arrived in September, that was the first thing that I started working on. Mind saying that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a seat. Everything that I'm working on is top secret. Oh, right. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> I can tell you, but but I have to tell you everything. It's all or nothing. Okay. Well, it links into um, the publication that I'm working on at the moment, which is Confessions of a Recovering Data Collector which is sort of summarising, it's a kind of mini retrospective and then it looks at all of the data collecting projects that I did between 2000 and 2006 or officially 2008 because I didn't finish the T-Brill project until 2008. But it looks at those projects and it kind of analyzes them as though they were symptoms of some hideous disorder <laughs> and then it kind of offers potential alternatives for making work so I commissioned um, Sally O'Reilly to write the text for the book and she kind of takes on the persona of this therapist who basically looks at the old works and rips them to pieces, really. <laughs> in the, the conclusion is that there's more going on in the world than these tiny events that were happening in my life. And I always knew that. I always knew that I wanted to make this conscious shift away from looking at really insignificant and tiny details to beginning to look at massive things that actually impact on the way that the world works so more political things and more global issues so that was a shift that I knew that I wanted to make um, and for me the text in the publication just kind of um, emphasises that really, emphasises the, the fact that I needed to change my work and to, to, to be honest to my, to my beliefs really and that I've always been interested in the world <laughs> and politics and I've always kind of wanted to try to do something so it was my work being so sort of self-absorbed and like um, in dealing with insignificant things was almost a betrayal to that side of my personality. So I'm now trying to connect it all. And the stuff that I'm working on at the moment, like my original idea was to try to produce an artwork that could instantaneously react to global events. So I came up with this idea of designing a piece of software that would scan BBC news feeds and it would be looking for specific words and only when those words appeared in the headlines would it be activated. So the original idea, the first idea that I had when I 
arrived on the course, which is still kind of unrealised because it's quite... Some people find it a little bit controversial. Is a, um, It's called Monument Maggie. And in a way, it's a monument to Margaret Thatcher. But it uses this software to continually scan the news feed, searching for the headline that kind of announces Margaret Thatcher's death, which we know <laughs> is going to happen, but we don't know when it's going to happen. So the artwork, the thing that it's going to be activated is a 1979 um, disco so it's a, it's a full kind of full blown disco setup from 1979, and the idea is that this would be installed in a, a space, a gallery space, or somewhere else, and it would just lie there dormant, connected to this software. And the moment the news comes through, which is kind of the moment the news breaks to the world, the disco will be activated and will remain on for um, a week. Um, so I, I kind of, this was the first thing that I worked on um, when I got on the course. And it was after I'd written the idea down, and it does only still exist on, in, on a kind of proposal format, that I began to unpick what I was actually doing with this idea. And making that move from... England to Scotland, even though it doesn't seem like a very significant distance or a very significant um, move, kind of gave me this more sort of objective view on where I'd come from and the sort of upbringing that I'd had. The fact that I was born in 1979, 54 days before Margaret Thatcher got elected, that I lived in suburbia it, for, for 19 years in the same house with my mum and my dad and my sister and our two cats and that that life that I had had actually infiltrated and affected the work that I was making and this is what is really teased out in the book is that actually the methods that I, I was using the fact that everything was fixated on numbers the fact that everything was kind of data driven target driven um, that there was a lot of mindless administration involved. All of these things were kind of the major significant changes that Margaret Thatcher made to the infrastructure of our country because she got rid of all of the main industries, the coal industries and you know all of the kind of real jobs if you like and she replaced them with this whole sort of system of finance related jobs or service related jobs so people were mindlessly administrating just for the sake of having a job so in a way I had this like revelation that the artist that I'd become the data collector that I'd become was perhaps because of the society that I'd grown up in and that I wasn't ever able to see that until I got that little distance between Ealing and Glasgow and I could look back on Ealing and kind of kind of criticise it. So in a way this piece, which I don't know whether it ever will be um, realised, 
it's slightly autobiographical in the sense that um, 1979 was the year that I was born. It was also the year that Margaret Thatcher came in. And actually, it was also the year that um, Jean-Francois Lyotard published The Postmodern Condition. And in The Postmodern Condition, he said that information will be the greatest commodity of the postmodern age. And that in the future, wars will be fought over information. So again, it was like highlighting the, the very beginnings of like this this whole sort of shift in the way that society is run. So these the, the songs that would be playing at the disco are the all of the songs which were number one in 1979. So I've got on there, um, when I was born, um, the Bee Gees tragedy was number one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means, but when when Margaret Thatcher came into power, the worst song of the entire year happened to be uh, number one, which was Art Garfunkel Bright Eyes. But there are some classics in there, like you've got Glory Gaynor, I Will Survive, you've got two Blondie songs, Heart of Glass and Sunday Girl. Um, you've got Ring My Bell by Anita Ward like there's a lot of classics in there so um, it was almost like this this revelation could only have happened in Glasgow I think this kind of fitting of everything into place but it does mean that I've got to the position where I'm totally rejecting almost all of my previous work and just seeing that as a phase that I had to go through in some sort of self-realisation. It was a revelation that I just that just occurred. Like you can't deny that this country has transformed dramatically since the seventies as a result of her, and the the changes that she made were the most revolutionary changes that were made in the entire century. So. The world that we were brought up in was dramatically different from the world before she was elected. I don't know. Like, I, I do have a tendency to put things into boxes. And as my mum would say, I'm very reductive in the... When I see an issue <laughs> or something, I just reduce it down to these kind of smaller, sort of bite-sized things that then I can make sense of. I think that's exactly what I was doing with the data collecting, is that, oh, I can't really summarise what real-life experience is like, so I'll just do it in this really simple way that involves writing down some numbers, like, every time I do a sneeze or something. Like, there's no explanation, it's just an objective description. But in my head, it just seems to all make sense, mm. and that's what I guess I'm striving for. Is it something about... Um is it something about that you're actually going to die one day? Is it? It's almost something a little bit morbid about having to document every minute of your life or every time you have a sneeze or you know making these insignificant things significant. Yeah, I mean, I am interested in in that idea. Like, I kind of thought about basing an artwork around the duration of a person's life quite a long time ago. Like. I thought about, just again, it's just a silly idea, but I thought about having some sort of 
sensor implanted into my own heart that would send off some sort of signal when it stopped beating that would then be picked up by some installation somewhere that would then trigger something to indicate that that event had happened. <laughs> something very insignificant. <laughs> like a little party popper going on or something. But, but I think there's also something to do with like the uncertainty of certain events. I don't like uncertainty, I don't think. Nobody does, really, but maybe I have sort of a heightened dislike of uncertainty, and that's why I've always sort of strived to create order out of things that don't generally make any sense. And that's what I'm doing now. It's exactly what I'm doing, because, you know, when I said at the beginning about trying to fit all of in, fit in all of this, like, structure into my routine so that I can live this very structured life so I can maximise the time that I get to spend working on my work and all of that I've now got to the point where I'm trying to work out how all of these activities that I'm doing feed into this larger project and I've created a diagram which is not necessarily an artwork but it was just a way of trying to sort of put down on paper how like possibly conflicting aspects of my personality might push and pull me in different directions. Can you just explain what this looks like to people <laughs> who are listening? I, I can explain a little bit. I mean, the centre of it is me, because I was trying to explain how all of these different activities and projects related to, to me as a person. And then around me, I saw two sides... It's two kind of conflicting drives, if you want, if you, if you want a better word. One is kind of ethical beliefs. So that is my idea of what is the correct way to behave, how I should modify my behaviour to have the s- smallest impact on the environment and all of that sort of stuff. And I became vegan on the uh, on the first of January as kind of a sort of manifestation of those beliefs so an action based on those beliefs but then that I think is in direct conflict with the desire to want to be an artist which is actually a very sort of self-centred egotistic drive really it's you promoting your ideas thinking that your ideas are interesting and the world should hear about them and then expecting the world to turn around and go, oh, that's good. And um, taking, you know, that's, that is a very sort of selfish thing to want to do. So I see the, the two sides of the personality to be in sort of direct conflict. But then out of this conflict is where the work emerges, I think. So the diagram that I've drawn just aims to describe how all of the projects that I'm working on fit into this conflict, which I think is inherent, well, it's at the core of my the position that I'm in now. Otherwise, I would just stop making art. Otherwise, uh, yeah, I would think when well, I do something more like that would directly affect, like that would have a direct. that could actively try to change the world I suppose I don't know what I would do but I'm not doing that
because the other side is saying, just keep going, <laughs> just do the MFAs, then just, just do that exhibition, and, you know, and then eventually, eventually you'll get there, eventually you'll be like, I see the successful artist, that's what you want to be, it's like, no I don't, <laughs> I want to do something, you know, like, selfless, no, you want to be selfish, like, it's kind of a bit like that. One of the, the things I thought was quite revealing about what you do is the tea blog. And I've, I've selected three quotes from okay. that tea blog. Oh my goodness. Um, and uh, they're quite, um, <laughs> quite, I can't think of the right word, but maybe quite close to the bone. It's quite okay. like revealing. Like even though a lot of the work is about data and almost hiding from the fact that it's sneezing. Yes. So, so here's, here's three. I'm scared. Um, the 21st of December 06. Sometimes when I get on a mission to do something, I will not stop for a moment until it's done. 16th of February 07. Fucking arseholes. Every day it feels as though my career goes further down than the shitter. 20th November 07. I never said that. If I could self-diagnose, I'd, I'd say I had OCD, manic depression and mild Tourette's. I mean... <laughs> yeah, well it's just as, just as well I can't really. But, um... Yeah, the T-Blog, the way I started to use T-Blog is because I quit data collecting on the 1st of August 2006, that was the official day, but yet I continued to T-Blog until the 31st of December 2008, so it was a three-year project, so I began to like use it as a venting ground, so it might have been that this sort of motivation for my work was shifting, so I thought, well, this project's ongoing, but actually it's just a place to empty out things that are in my head. So I, that's what I used it for. And I think if you do read it, I don't expect anyone to read it from start to finish. <laughs> like there's 1,600 or so, odd, 650 um, thoughts in there. But... Um, I think it does become like slightly more angry as it goes on. Or maybe it was always angry. I'm I'm quite an angry person. <laughs> I think um, it does. It definitely does shift though as I've changed. It changes as I've changed over the three years. But. I tried to be as honest as possible in it, and I also used it like as a venting ground for things that were annoying me, things that I was thinking about. Um, and I think it does, does reflect times when I was depressed as well, like that middle one about um, the fucking assholes. I think that probably was just after I'd received some sort of letter of rejection. Like, there's a lot to do with being rejected and... I mean, those are the realities of being an artist. Like, it is, like, a constant battle for, like... It's like a... It's a con you're constantly begging, really. Like, it is quite degrading. Like, you're constantly writing proposals, submitting proposals, having proposals rejected. <laughs> like, 
it's a, you're constantly striving for somebody to say yes. That's very needy. It's a very sort of needy profession in that extent. But I'm not really associated with that anymore because I'm now doing this course, so I'm out of that whole side of it. And I think that's, that can only be healthy because it does... It's soulless. It's soul-destroying. <laughs> it's like this relentless sort of beating, if you like. And you have to compromise as well because of the beating. Like You have to compromise your ideas. And I don't think it's a healthy situation to be in. So I don't know what the perfect solution is because obviously in two years' time I'm going to be finish my course and I'll probably be back there again <laughs> I think the, I don't know the best I think I, I really I'd like to stay involved in education whether it's doing a PhD or doing teaching more that's where I think the kind of the best place, the safest, the healthiest place to be is, really. Do you ever, do you ever see your work as sort of a public embarrassment in a way? Like Always. <laughs> yeah, like this morning when I was in, because I've been in the... Um, the design, the person who's designing the publication, praise. I've been in his office, and there's this spread, which has got all of extracts from my swear box project, which is all of these sort of things that I'd said that had swear words in, and they were sat there reading things out loud in front of me, and I just got to the point where I had to stand up and put a bit of paper in front of the screen because I just didn't want them reading it anymore in front of me, and like, I do cringe when you say, well, you've got three of these T-blog entries which are now going to resize me, because I, and actually one of, I think it says now on my website, because on my website now I have this asterisk thing which randomly generates definitions, or doesn't randomly generate, so it takes them out of a database of a definition, but one of them says embarrassed about the things, it says Ellie Harrison asterisk embarrassed about most of the stuff she's published on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I, I, I really don't like... I would, I would never sit in front of a person who is looking at the T-Blog project. Never. What, the, 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 thing with, the thing with the T-Blog and some of the other projects is that it's a one-way one system. Like yeah. You publish something from your head and it goes onto the internet and it goes out and you don't have that contact with an audience. But like at the point which I'm then telling you back what you've already just told anybody else, yeah. like it becomes excruciating. Like, yeah. Is it? Is it that it needs other people to read it for it to exist in a way, or is it? Um. Or is it I just the it fact that they're there as a? Yeah, I mean, I think it probably does need other people to read it for there to be any point in it existing but I think it does still exist without that um, like that's why I took to the internet so much when I first discovered 
it or how to make websites in 2000. It was like, even if nobody is looking at your website, um, you still feel like they might be. <laughs> like it gives you that motivation to do something, I suppose. It's like an outcome, it's a place where this stuff can exist. So it. But I don't actually like to think about the people that I know reading these things on the internet because that is quite embarrassing. Um, so I just prefer not to think about that. But I'm not going to take it down, even though I'm now sort of a, a cured, I'm cured of data collecting. Well, you're obviously not. Because the website is another mass database of collections and this book is a public collection and you're going swimming in this sort of... I am cured, Bruce. I mean, my objective was to take myself out of the work. That was my objective. But don't you still have the, the swimming across the ocean? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a lifelong project, so I can't just give that up. No. And the, what's the other one? The skiing, skating? Oh, one. yeah, but the swimming is the main one that I'm working, like I'm actually it's, doing. It's a document of every... You, you measure every time you go swimming or yeah. you calculate how much you've actually swum and compare that to how long it'll take you to cross the... Yeah, it's an ongoing ocean. project. started it in 2000 and... We started the swimming in 2002 but I only built the programme in 2004. But every time I go swimming I update my cumulative distance, which I think now is over 800 kilometres. And then I it calculates how old I'll be by the time I've swum the 5,400 kilometre distance which is the equivalent of going swimming from the UK to America so I'm continuing that but it's not it doesn't take up that much I mean obviously the swimming takes up time <laughs> quite a lot of time but I might think that I, I would be swimming anyway just for my health's sake and the fact that this project exists only motivates me to swim more so I do keep that going and also because I would like to get to the point where I'm 74 and to say, I've done it, I've swum 5,400 kilometres. Like, that is in my thoughts, that's reaching that point. Well, again, it's a goal, you know, it's like, it's a, you know, the, some of the things I've seen in your work is self-improvement, public embarrassment, meeting of public and private spheres, and um, goal setting, like, that seems to be... Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to um, erase all of that stuff from the work. This is why I have this kind of idea of, like I talked a bit about the Monument Maggie idea, but um, there's other ideas that I'm working on that are, I see them as quite very removed from me personally. Um, like an idea that I'm, well, I'm working on this for an exhibition in Sweden which is looking at the history of financial crisis, it's got a very boring title it's called the history of financial crisis but I wanted it to have a boring title to counteract the funness of the exhibit itself but it is a, it's a history of financial crisis um, which is go over the last 100 years, so starting with the Wall Street crash in 1929 which is going to be reenacted in the gallery <laughs> space by popcorn making machines. So the popcorn making machines is going to be eleven, each representing eleven 
of the major financial crisis crises over the last century and then they'll be on timers so that the period that the gallery is open for each day will represent the century and then they will each go off at different points so I'm not really in this work at all um, really although I was uh, I was talking about this in a tutorial the other day and with and the person was saying well you are kind of using these objects, like you're using these popcorn machines almost for a metaphor for you in a way, like you're being removed but the objects are going in and they're sort of speaking for you if you like. And I quite like that way of looking at it and that's what I'm trying to do, like I'm trying to develop a practice that I used to have when, before I got into any of this stake, like collecting malarkey. Like, it's amazing how similar this piece is to a piece that I made in 2000, which is Kinetic Cake, Kinetic Carrot, which is a piece about the energy contained in a carrot and a chocolate clair, and they move on these train tracks at speeds which are proportional to the amount of energy and calories in each, in, inside each food. And that is very similar to what I've returned to because I'm using these objects as metaphors, as ways of illustrating data, if you like. So the, da the data's still there, but the thing that's not there so directly is me. So I've begun to work on these sort of proposals for ideas, but I, I find it really difficult not to see the, the, di these discrete ideas as part of this bigger, bigger project, which is what I attempted to illustrate in the diagram, was trying to work out, well, how all of this fits, comes out of me and is part of this expanded practice, if you like. And there's some other things that I'm working on which don't really sit so comfortably in this idea of a discrete artwork, like they are more sort of odd projects if you like, because I'm starting a campaign to bring back British Rail, which is actually literally a campaign to bring back British Rail, so it's, it's a kind of another activity which I see sitting alongside and maybe dealing with some of the issues that I'm looking at with some of the other ideas, but being something quite separate, having its own life, and potentially appealing to people who have no interest in art as well. And there's these other things that I'm kind of working on as well. It's just... So is, <coughs> is that... Um, so the British Rail thing, is, do you think that's all related to, to the, the Maggie Thatcher piece? It is related, definitely. I mean, I read a book, A Brief History of Neoliberalism, which I read just over the last month or so, but it talks about how Reagan and Thatcher basically transformed the whole way that the world economic system works. And this project called Neoliberalism, which Thatcher and Reagan were both big um, promoters of and the idea was to use this word freedom so to, to base the whole project on 
appealing to people, individuals' desires for freedom um, and individuality, to use that as a kind of shield or, or a kind of um, disguise for this actual thing that was happening below the scenes, which was to make a very small number of people incredibly rich. So neoliberalism kind of proposed to be, to be good for everyone, but the actual outcome was that an economic elite emerged. So the fact that all of our public industries were sold off at the end of the Conservative government um, under John Major was part of this neoliberal project. And even now, those companies that run our railways are, are being run for profit, and profit is, only exists to keep a small minority of shareholders happy. So that is the main objective of any capitalist um, organisation or capitalist company is to make money for shareholders. So what we want really is a efficient, cheap, reliable, sustainable public transport system. Why why do we have to it, do you do you think then before do you think before the, the railways were sold off that it was a more it works better the railways. Did you experience that? I mean, I think they they, they were privatised in ninety one. So I do remember British Rail. Um, the problems that we have at the moment is that the tickets are very expensive. <laughs> like a report just came out this week saying that it's four times more expensive to travel, like equivalent distances in Britain as it is in France or anywhere else in Europe. Um, I don't think that. Mm, yeah, I don't think the British Rail was a brilliant system before, and that's and people complained about it all the time. But I don't think it doesn't mean that it can't be better than it is at the moment. And the thing that you have at the moment is you have rival companies running. Um, different sections of the railway network so what you don't have is cooperation because they don't why should they cooperate with each other when they're essentially rivals so if one train is late because of a different is is if you miss one connection because a rival train company's train was delayed they don't, they don't give a shit basically it's not their problem it's somebody else's problem and why should it something as important as a transport system like be based on such kind of petty like profiteering but on the flip side of that you can say that perhaps uh Competition is a way of improving services. If you have a monopoly, then there's no competition and there's no real reason to improve any service. I mean, that is an argument made by capitalists to defend the capitalist system. I mean, I would say that what's happening at the moment is our railways are being subsidised. The railway companies that are running our railways are being subsidised now more than they ever were on... Um, when British Rail was was it the system in, in in use, so 
we as taxpayers are paying subsidies which are being used to pay shareholders dividends really of these profit making companies you can't run a net you can't run a, a rail network and make a profit it doesn't exist these companies only make profits because of the government subsidies that they're being paid and I think that why should it be a profit? Why does everything have to be a profit-making industry? That, that's why we pay taxes, is so that we can get like um, services outside of the capitalist system. Like otherwise, you end up with a health service that you have to pay for every time you want to see a doctor, and nobody wants that, do they? There's some services that you just kind of expect to have access to, and I think that if you're serious about like encouraging people to cut down on their use of cars and other transport systems that aren't sustainable, then you have to have a realistic alternative. And for me, <laughs> that is a publicly owned transport system. It's almost like you're not talking about transport there. You're not talking about British Rail, you're talking about power stations, government. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the campaign is like has two objectives, really. The first objective is to bring back British Rail, so that's the simple um, side of it. The, the other objective is to just kind of open people's eyes to what's been happening, like the neoliberal project. I didn't, I'd never heard of the word neoliberalism before I, before I went to Glasgow, to be honest, before I started doing this research. And discovering about it and finding about it is like having my eyes opened, like seriously waking up and realising what's been going on. And all of the propaganda that you hear about um, about why our services will be better if they're privatised is all part of this major brainwashing project to make people believe that they will be better off under this system in order to make this very, very, very small number of people incredibly wealthy at all of our expense. So I'm very suspicious of everything. <laughs> but I still think that I don't want to have a public transport system that makes profit. Why should we? All we want is just something that's efficient and that's cheap and that works. But it is a sideline to this, 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 I just, like on my diagram, I do have one of my motivations as being this kind of belief in that something is right, like, I know that people believe that capital, some people believe that capitalism is the right system, but there's something inside me that says, that it's not, that, that, that it's the wrong, that it's unfair, it's unjust, like it's this kind of like compulsion to act on something, like if you see something that's unju in, unjust, that you sort of feel compelled to act on it. So that's one thing that is motivating me, but at the same time, I'm actually quite interested in moral philosophy and looking at how we construct these notions of what's right and wrong as well. So every, almost everything that I do is kind of totally undermined 
by some other strain of my research to a certain extent. And one thing that I'm thinking of doing, which kind of links into this idea of political action, but also links into this idea of licentiousness, which is a kind of total um, oh, a, a licentiousness, which is a which is a total abandoning of morals. Like they say that the Marquis de Sade was totally licentious because the stuff that he <laughs> he did was to, you know totally immoral. But I'm interested in that idea of um, how you may actually behave if there were no ethical constraints or if there were no like moral systems that are conditioned into you. So I've been looking at Second Life as a potential place to experiment with licentiousness. And I think it is a centre of licentiousness. <laughs> but what I want to do is to start a terrorist faction in Second Life, which will almost be a homage to the Bader Meinhof in that that's kind of what it will be a lefty terrorist faction but as well as kind of being a homage I want it to begin to pick apart maybe how you would behave how people would behave if there weren't any moral constraints and actually it could be quite fun to walk into a restaurant with a machine gun and just mow people down if there weren't any consequences. <laughs> so that's the aim of the, of the Second Life Army faction, is to kind of explore that idea. Because if you've seen the Bader Meinhof film, there's this moment where um, Ulrike Meinhof makes the decision to to side with the um, terrorists. She makes a decision to jump out the, this window and follow, follow them in their escape from the scene of one of their um, earliest kind of... It's an escape mission, actually. It's when they're trying to um, release Andreas Bader. But there's this moment where you can kind of see all of these thoughts going through her head and she's thinking about the consequences of her actions and she knows that when she makes that decision to, to jump out of the window and go with them, that her, her entire life will change from that point onwards. So I'm quite interested in looking at that decision or those decisions in an arena where there are no consequences and it seems that that's what Second Life can be. Although it is very difficult to control. <laughs> Have you been on it? It's yeah. difficult to walk around. God knows how I'm going to actually organise anything, because I can hardly... Also, they just banned your account, right? Really? Don't know. Who knows? Who knows what they'll do? I know, it, but it's quite interesting to see how capitalism has spread into Second Life as well. And well, cap, cap, the Second Life is a microcosm of capitalism. Like, it's not... It's not really an, it's not an alternative way of living. It's it's just um, well, it has become an yeah, it has become a but microcosm. Not, but it's not yeah. it's not any different from the real world. Like. But you can exist there. It, it it is to the extent you can exist in Second Life without spending any money. Like I, you can't really engage without spending money. Well, I went to um, a lap dancing club the other day. Not through choice, just because I happened to walk past it on the map and um, saw it. It was with Stuart and Anna. We, we went in um, and uh, I didn't have to pay a penny. 
but um, I think, and, and also, like, I can exist in Second Life. I think I've had my character since sometime last year, and I haven't spent anything. Well, admittedly, I do have the most terrible outfit on, but I don't know how to change my outfit. <laughs> I haven't really mastered it yet. <laughs> but I, I think it is interesting the way that it's also become this, like, almost, like, totally fictitious captain's system. It's weird because it's real money but it's not a real place so it becomes even more absurd. I think it's a bizarre phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, I think probably talk for hours about Second Life so I think maybe um, I think I'd probably maybe end it there. Okay. Um, so I'd just like to say thank you to my guest, Ellie Harrison, for um, coming down to talk with me today. It's okay, Bruce. Thanks for having me.